The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Welcome back. This is our final week covering this question. Deroshi, why do you hold to young earth creationism, believing that God created a mature earth in six 24-hour periods in a literal week, and that the earth is extremely young, six to 10,000 years earth years old. So last week, we were making a case, I was making a case for a young earth from Scripture, and we're going to continue that this week. Last week, I gave three reasons. Number one, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 places humanity within the first week of creation. Number two, The New Testament closely associates the history of Genesis 2-4 with the beginning of the world. We assessed a number of comments from Jesus and also in the book of Hebrews that closely tie together marriage, the fall, with the beginning. Number three, Genesis' linear genealogies in chapters 5 and 11 point to a recent humanity. The genealogies in Genesis 5 through 11 are different than any other genealogies in Scripture. We see something a little bit comparable in Exodus 6 and 7 because there are some some dates mentioned. But even there, it's not as specific as we have in Genesis 5 through 11, where we get ages when children were born and then how long the father ended up living before he died. And then the the next... um, son in the line of descent, were told how old he was when the next child was born. Even if you wanted to say it was a grandson or a great-grandson, that child was still born when this man was this age. And I just struggle to see how we can view gaps in these genealogies. So now we come to my third, sorry, my fourth argument for young earth creationism For a young earth from Scripture, I have three more today, and we're going to be pressed to cover them. But this is the last week we're going to be looking at this. Here it is. Mankind's station as the climax of creation and sole image of God, and Adam's role as head of the first creation, I believe supports a young earth view. What we're talking about is the placement of man within God's purposes from the beginning to the end. An old earth model says man doesn't show up for thousands, even millions of years. And yet, the role of mankind is highly significant within the story of God's glory in Christ. So we begin. It seems unlikely that the earth would be millions or billions of years old, and yet humanity very, very young Because mankind was the peak of God's creative activity, and God made Adam the covenantal head over all the first creation. First creation meaning in contrast to the new creation that Jesus brings about. So we're going to look at some features here. Number one, note how in Genesis chapter 1, 
the stuff of earth that is not human is portrayed, the way that it's written, is in direct relation to humanity. So, we see the luminaries. God puts the sun, moon, and stars in the sky in order to separate day from night, light from darkness. And then we read this, Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Signs for whom, is my question. That God puts the stars in the sky and the sun and the moon in the the sky to teach something. To whom, I ask? If not, to humans. Genesis 1.14 is where we get this statement. And then in Genesis 15.5, what do we have? We have Adam, sorry, Abraham outside, Abram, wondering, how can I know that you're going to give me a child? What does God say? Let me give you a sign. Look at the stars. If you can count them, so shall your offspring be. Or in Jeremiah 33.22, you fear that my promises will not come about. I tell you that as sure as the heavens and the earth are standing so too will my promises to David to bring about the Messiah be fulfilled. God puts the luminaries in the sky for humans. Number two, all terrestrial creatures that are not human are governed by humans. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that's on the earth. Animals have governors. And an old earth model would suggest the governors didn't show up for some time. Humans are the climax of creation and sole representatives of God on earth, with some being chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him, having been predestined in love for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to the praise of God's glorious grace. This is what God creates humans for, to the praise of His glorious grace. All oversight of the world, to the praise of His glorious grace. Creating a people who would recognize their sinfulness and need for Jesus, to the praise of His glorious grace. I've got a list here. A couple, just a list of elements from Genesis chapter 1 that highlight the centrality of man in the story. We start out with the sixth day. You can't see it in the ESV, but if you have a New American Standard, you can see it. At the end of each of the first six days, there is a day-ending formula. There was evening and there was morning. For the first five days, it actually doesn't have a definite article. The. Even though in the ESV it's there, it's not there in the Hebrew text. It says, evening and morning, a first day. Evening and morning, a second day. A third day. A fourth day. A fifth day. The sixth day. Out of all the days, it's the only day that says the, which I think just draws attention to this day. Out of all six, now we've arrived, and it's the very place where humans find themselves, and the Bible's given to humans. 
They find themselves here. It's in the day six that the most literary space, that is words, the most words in chapter one are given to day six and the instructions that God gives humans. It shows that this creation is bringing us somewhere. But as soon as you find yourself in the page, at the climax of creation, humanity, only after day six can God say, very good. Up till then, it's just good, 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 very good. Then we arrive at day six, we find ourselves there, and God doesn't let us stay there. Why? Because we're imagers of God. Humans have a distinctive role in a world where God is working for His own glory. Everything He does is to bring about the display of Himself. He does it in a distinctive way through humanity. We alone, of all creation, are declared to be the image of God. Reflectors, resemblers, representatives of this great king in the world. But an old earth model identifies a God who is passionate to preserve and display His glory as not bringing about His image bearers until the ninth inning. Yet this is a world about the display of God. Not only this, Scripture portrays all of creation. When you think about what God is doing from beginning to end, it is put through the lens of only two individuals. There is Adam and there is Jesus. The first Adam and the last Adam. You're either in Adam, number one, or you're in Adam, number two. Everything in all the world hinges on these two people. The first Adam brings the world into chaos. The first Adam's sin makes, brings curse upon everything. And it's the second Adam's obedience that brings life and help and ultimately new creation. So we have... Through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. And through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So, I'm just, I'm just saying that in God's work, from beginning to end, humanity plays a central role. And not only humanity, but Adam. The whole story hinges on him. And yet an old earth model doesn't bring him on the scene until very, very late. God's oversight, provision, protection of animals is significantly manifest through mankind. That is, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And as humans, working out the image of God, we are representing God's authority and rule in the world. So it seems to me most likely that there is a strong association between that which mankind is called to oversee and mankind's role as kings. Um, that It makes sense that, to me that they would have been brought together because uh, mankind is indeed the climax of the creation and everything is understood only in relation to him. 
Number two, or number five. Scripture usually portrays the death and suffering of living creatures as part of curse. So millions of years of animal suffering and death pre-fall seems unlikely to me. An old earth model requires millions of years of animal death and suffering. And if you read the fossil record as a testimony to time, rather than, for example, catastrophe, stratification layers after a global flood is how I'm prone to read the fossil record, rather than as a testimony to time, where you have smaller life forms giving rise to higher level life forms, or sporadic creationism, which would be an old earth perspective that's non-evolutionary, that the fossil record witnesses different periods of God's creative activity. And he chose to create, not through evolution, but at different stages, starting with lowest level to higher level. What that fossil record witnesses to is thousands, even millions of years of suffering and death. What do we find? We find evidences of predatory activity. We find cancer, large tumors in animal life, way before when mankind is supposed to arrive and when mankind is supposed to sin and the fall and the curse come. We find fossilized thorns. How does that relate to what happens in Genesis 3, 17? As I'm looking at Scripture, it it seems to me that the portrayal of death, even in living creatures, has only one explanation. It's the sin of mankind. Here's a few notes. So I already mentioned the fossilized thorns, pre-mankind, as some would read it. Predatory activity, diseases like cancer... So we have to ask ourselves, what did the curse change? If Jurassic Park was operative prior to the fall, except humans weren't being eaten, but if all the rest of it was happening, and not only that, if there was all the pain and struggle in animals, what changed in the rest of the world? Come the fall. Is the only change that now some of that predatory activity was turned on humanity. Is that the only thing? From a biblical perspective, cellular decay, this is another note before I get into my my argument. The Bible doesn't refer to, as you're reading Genesis 1, 2, death is not identified with the eating of vegetables. Cellular decay in animal vegetation is not addressed. Another thing that's not addressed is what was happening with everything underneath the water. All we're told is that God gives the vegetables to humans and to the animals. And then things change at the flood. And the way the comments work at the time of the flood in Genesis chapter 9 suggests to me that indeed things have changed not only for man, they can eat meat, but it suggests to me that it also changes for the animals, that that up until that point that they weren't 
eating humans or meat. That they, they too were vegetarian. But it doesn't tell us anything about the fish. I just throw that out. The text doesn't talk about whether subterranean creatures were eating one another. It's not even part of the discussion. But cellular decay is, not, is also not part of the discussion. Cellular decay in plants. It's a recognition that humans are able to eat vegetables before the fall and before the curse. And that's not considered death. Now, the principal consequence of humanity's rebellion in the garden was human death. Hear that. Human death. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, in his discussion of the age of the earth, notes how many young earth creationists have gone to Romans 5.12 as a support for saying that there was no death or suffering prior to the fall of any kind. But Grudem is correct that Romans 5.12 doesn't address death beyond humans. It addresses death in humans. It's talking about the consequence of the fall in that text is that humans began to die. Both physically, we began to decay, we began to have bodies that wore out, outer self wasting away. That happened due to sin. On the very day you eat of it, you will die. And that day starts a time clock physically, where bodies begin to wear out, rather than physical bodies lasting forever. And spiritually, on that very day, Adam and Eve are separated from the very life-giving presence of God. Death happened to humans as a result of human sin. But, not only was there a consequence for humanity due to human sin, the text is also very clear that humanity's sin had consequences for the rest of the world. And we have to be able to define what those consequences were. God cursed the animals. Notice how it's worded. The Lord God said to the serpent, who himself was a beast, and if we have time, this will come back into consideration later. The Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, because you've deceived Eve and brought humanity down, because you worked for role reversal, pushing the envelope, and Adam did not provide and protect. Instead, he was passive and all hell broke loose on earth. Because you've done this, serpent, cursed are you above all livestock. The way that that's worded, in the same way, it's, it's worded with the exact same phrase, he was more crafty than any other beast of the field. He was more crafty. That doesn't mean none of the other beasts weren't crafty. He was just the most crafty. Similarly here, he's cursed more than or above all the livestock, meaning that the livestock too were cursed. What changed? What does it look like for beasts to be cursed? God cursed the animals. Not only that, God cursed the ground. 
Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you. In Genesis 2.5, this is the image of, I believe, the certain types of bushes that were not yet created, that had not yet um, come out of the ground. When mankind was there. It's specifically these ones that were part of the curse. And God's wanting in Genesis 2.5 for the reader to know, I'm taking you back before the curse. Before man was kicked out of... Before man was kicked out of the garden to work the ground. I've cursed the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it shall bring. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. Now notice what it says. Here it is. This is the curse to humans. For out of ground you were taken, sorry, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Notice that this is the curse on humans. The result in this text of human sin, is that they will go back to the ground. That will come back in just a little bit. Keep that in mind. Also, God didn't just curse animals. He didn't just curse the ground. He subjected the whole world to futility. This word in the Greek is the same word that we see repeated over and over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. The ESV translates it vanity. I don't think vanity is the best. I think that it's frustration or enigma or a mystery. The whole world was subjected to a brokenness that we can't understand. It was subjected to futility not willingly. Notice, the world was subjected to futility. All creation. Not willingly. It didn't choose to be subjected. But because of Him who subjected it. It was subjected because of him who subjected it in hope. Satan did not subject the world to frustration in hope. Adam's sin did not subject the world to frustration in hope. This is a statement of the sovereign God working out his justice against sin in the world. And God subjected the world to frustration. Not at the beginning... This is not, I don't believe, and many old earthers, like Hugh Ross, I was in a small group meeting with Hugh Ross, who's an old earth creationist with reasons to believe, dear brother, but he understood this text to always, always he had thought this text referred to what God did at the beginning of creation. That when he said, let there be light, all that he did in the very first week was subjecting the world to futility. But there was, I don't know, six or ten Bible scholars, a whole room of scientists, and then six or ten Bible scholars that we were all invited to be part of this discussion about the possibility of death before the fall. And not one of the Bible scholars, half of us were young earth, half of us were old earth, but not one of us we're reading this text to refer to what God did at the beginning of creation. Everyone was reading it in light of the fall. 
This is part, the, a, a declaration of the curse. That's how it's used in the book of Ecclesiastes. And this word corruption, the world was subjected to futility in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And this is most likely an echo or allusion to Genesis chapter 6, where we read this. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and the Lord saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for all the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy, or very literally, I will corrupt them with the earth. One, two, three, four. Four times in that one text, the Noun or verb of corruptibility is brought to bear. And I think most likely what, this, what Paul is doing is he's echoing. Echoing Genesis chapter 6, which comes after the fall. The flood is a climax of an earthly curse. The Lord subjected the world to futility in Noah's sin, but he did so in hope. All of this is, I'm simply pointing out that the world changed at the curse. Something happened to the world at the curse. And the question is, what? What changed if death and suffering was fully operative prior to the curse except in man? That... That's the question. At the flood, God punishes all flesh. Not simply humanity, but all flesh. And then it defines it in Genesis 7, 20 and 21. All flesh means everything that breathes, including the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Sorry, not the fish of the sea. Birds of the heavens and the animals that creep on the earth. And it's not just that he destroys all flesh. He destroys all flesh because of the violence of all flesh. That is, the violence in the animal kingdom is contemptible. And, but he only punishes it at the flood. Now that violence, it seems to me most likely, is directly related to violence done against humans. That's what makes it most contemptible. You'll note as we walk through here, as I said, I have no silver bullet argument against the old earth. And I personally don't have a substantive problem with there being animal death and suffering pre-fall. There's not going to be predation, predatory activity among the animals as best as I can see in the new earth. But that may simply be escalation rather than return. The new earth is portrayed as an Eden. And we know that in Psalm 104, God celebrates and receives praise for a lion lurking for its food. In Psalm 104, simply being a predator is not a bad thing. I think what makes predatory activity by its nature bad 
from the predator's perspective is when it's done against humans. But what I'm wrestling with right now is simply the question, how does pain and suffering relate to the curse? And pastorally, we talk, Pastor John has talked this way, that all sickness, all pain, is what we call natural evil. Whether it's cancer in a human or cancer in a cat, it's something that Christ died to redeem. But if you remove that suffering from the fall, then it's not a problem for anything other than a human to suffer by its nature. What makes suffering a problem is if it's brought on humans. And yet, when the Bible talks about suffering and death, it only talks about it in relation to curse. We have to ask ourselves, could it be possible that there were morphological and behavioral transformations that took place as a result of the curse? We know that there is adaptation that happens within all forms of life, so that there can be reshapings. Um, People that grow up in super cold weather struggle to exist in super hot climates. You can have, I mean, some people have called it microevolution. It's just adaptation within a single species. It's a much better way to talk about it. But creatures are able to adapt. And my question is, could there be actual changes that took place as part of curse? So people will talk about, you know, a lion's teeth can't eat vegetables. It's designed for food. And I I don't... I simply note there could be adaptations that take place. Scripture regularly associates animal death with curse and animal life with blessing. Let's just think about this. How does Scripture talk about death and suffering among animals? Well, it's associated with the curse against man for sin. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve get garments of skin, or when Abel brings... um, his offering, or when um, a ram is caught in the thicket and replaces Isaac, in each of those instances, animal death is being associated with curse. All flesh, including animals, stand as the object of God's wrath in the flood judgment and in Nineveh. In both instances, it talks, it uses the word violence. Same term in Hebrew. And in both instances, when God relents or turns things around, it will have not only an impact on humans enjoying the blessing of God, it's also explicitly stated this is for all the creatures of the earth. The life of the creatures is related to blessing, whereas the death of the creatures is related to curse. Eight of the ten plagues of Egypt included animals. 
And many of them were directly associated with the death of those animals. Now, noteworthy, it was the death of the animals that would have an impact on the humans. So in this instance, humans are part of the mix. So it's the livestock. Was God angry at the animals in this text? In both um, Nineveh and in the flood, he was angry at the animals, not just humans. But in the plagues, we don't have a sign that he was angry at the animals. And so to punish the humans, he addressed their animals. But the death of animals is still associated with curse. In the context of Yahweh's wars of judgment, he commissions the slaughter of everything that breathes, including the animals. Somehow they've been tainted by the wickedness of the people and part of the house cleaning of sacred space in order to make Canaan the place where God's presence can exist includes clearing out the ugliness that was bound up in the animal life. Now we go back to that text in Genesis 3. The preacher in Ecclesiastes links animal death with human death when, it, when he recalls the Genesis curse to mankind, suggesting to me that, that in his mind, when he thought about animals dying and returning to the dust, this was something directly associated with human sin and the curse that God brought about. Notice how it's worded. In Genesis 3.19, only related to humans, it says, Adam, by the sweat Of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I made note at the beginning of last week that I had this aha moment a little bit that animals, like humans, were also created out of the dust. The woman came out of the man's side, but Adam was created out of the dust. And then God breathed into him the breath of life. And he became a living creature. Well, we're told that the animals came out of the ground as well. And so that suggested to me, in contrast to how I had taught the first week, that maybe the Bethlehem Elder Affirmation of Faith implicitly actually doesn't allow for any type of evolutionary thinking. Even though it explicitly only addresses the evolution of man and says, we won't have leaders at our church that hold to that. But notice here, the statement is, man came out of dust, and to dust you shall return. That's the curse due to human sin. But now look at how the preacher talks. He's comparing and even bemoaning the fact that, and and it's, it's confusing to him. I don't understand the fact that humans can be created as the only imagers of God, elevated above all creation, and yet our end on earth is exactly the same. We die like the dog dies, and both of us return to the dust. What happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same as one dies. So dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has not advantage over the beast, for all is, in the ESV, vanity. All is mysterious. All is enigma. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Now this is a clear allusion to Genesis 3.19. And it seems it's a, it's a support in my model because he is associating a curse that was brought on mankind for their sin as also impacting the animal kingdom. It suggests to me that this is one of the 
curses that was brought on terrestrial creatures. Cursed are you more than all the beasts of the field to the serpent. And this would be one of those. Number six. The shift away from animal predation in the new creation. So think about the lion and the lamb being together. Not devouring one another. It's a picture. It may not be, we may not be supposed to be thinking about it literally. It may be just a picture of peace. But the picture of peace is being given to us as no more predatory activity from the perspective of animals eating animals. And the question is, is that escalation beyond the Garden of Eden? Or is it a return to the image of the original creation? I want to say when it's joined with the fact that animal death and suffering, sorry, let me just read this. When it's joined with humanity's consumption of meat in the new creation, you may not, when when you just think in the new creation, that is when the heavenly Jerusalem that we all identify with comes to earth, in that day when curse will be no more, When there will be no more death, no more tears. I ask you, does that mean there will be no animal death? When you picture the future, do you picture us all vegetarian? Or do you picture us eating fish and chips? Jesus ate fish and chips in his resurrection body, which is the first fruits of the new creation, after he rose from the grave. The vision of the new earth in Ezekiel 47 is of the water of life flowing down from the new temple into the Dead Sea. And it makes the Dead Sea sweet. And who surrounds the Dead Sea? Fishermen. Fishermen surround the Dead Sea. He's envisioning the new creation and the waters that were once dead are teeming with life. And I get to fish. Yes! I like that. What does Jesus say on the night of His Passover? I will not what? Eat this Passover with you again. And what did that include? Roasted, that is, barbecued lamb chops. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. So the question is, we have no predatory activity among the animal kingdom, but we still have humans eating meat. Now, they could just be side-by-side images that were not supposed to be taken literally, but were, they're just depicting two different realities. For example, the massively thick walls of the New Jerusalem in, in Revelation 21 are designed to let us know there is massive security in the presence of God. And yet there's 12 gates that are never shut. That's security, isn't it? No, that's portraying a different image. 
that all are welcome to come into the presence of God. There's no more barriers because there's no more curse. So you can use side-by-side images to depict different realities in prophecy. And you just have to recognize they're depicting two different realities. And, and they're making a comparable point from different angles. And yet we're not supposed to read them side by side. Now I say that, and then I'm going to propose the possibility that we're actually supposed to read these side by side. No predation among animals, and yet humans are going to get to eat meat. And I'm saying that may suggest a young earth. So how does that work? Here's where I note, pastorally, suffering, death, decay, and natural disaster are natural evils, at least with respect to humans. Oh, I had a printout and then I didn't print this part out. Is it part of the curse that a dog would have rabies? Or is it only a curse if that rabid dog bites my child? Is it a curse if a dog or if a cat gets in a fight with a cat and that one cat is blinded? Is that just part of the broken world? Or is it not? If thousands of years of natural cataclysmic disasters, like a hailstorm, In the atmosphere, all things were in order before the flood. I mean, before the fall. That's how I understand them. And that after the flood, after the fall, God withholds his influence and allows some chaos to enter into the world. Because all, I mean, God is a God of life. Where he is is life. And it's the absence of God's positive influence that brings about death and destruction. Is a tsunami. Part of the curse? Or is it only a curse if it kills humans? If thousands of years of natural cataclysmic disasters and animal suffering, decay, and death are severed from the fruit of the curse, then one is forced to view such realities as natural evil only because they bring harm or discomfort to humans. There would be nothing inherently wrong or even chaotic about a tumor or arthritis or blindness in animals. Scripture only connects sin, suffering, and death, though, to the fall. It highlights Christ's death and resurrection as the only solution to the problem of human rebellion and its consequences, which appears to include all earthly evil, both natural evils like cancer and car accidents, and moral evils directly related to rebellion against God. Because you've done this, serpent, cursed are you above the livestock, and it's because you've done this that he, the offspring of the woman, will bruise your head. That's why Christ comes, to address this issue. But an old earth model puts some things outside the curse. Now, I affirm Eden was not perfect. Now, let me reword that. I mean to say Eden was perfect, but it wasn't complete. Eden was not the picture of what was supposed to be forever. That was where everything was supposed to start. And from there, Adam and Eve were supposed to fill the earth, multiply and subdue it, taking the image of God to the ends of the earth so that the glory of God displayed in humans might be 
expansive like the waters cover the sea. That is, Eden was supposed to consume the earth. The presence of God, like in a holy of holies, was supposed to become everything. So Eden was perfect, but it wasn't complete. The question at hand is, what does a perfect world look like? The sufferings of this present time, not only for humans, but also for all creation, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation is going to get to taste and see the goodness of God like we are going to get to taste and see the goodness of God. Some texts portray the creation as the old creation as being burned up and the new creation as if it's something brand new. This text identifies that there is still some connection between the original creation and the new one. So that our depiction, our picture of God's glory as we, we stand on Overlooking, for example, um, on Shovel Point at Tedaguchi State Park up at Lake Superior. You're standing out on, on Shovel Point and just looking at the expanse of Lake Superior and looking along the coast of all these 150 to 200 foot cliffs screaming up out of the icy Caribbean. Beauty! And that is part of the cursed world. What's the uncursed world going to be like? It's supposed to awaken new affections in our lives as we we see vistas of glory, as we get to enjoy our kids, as we get to delight in our spouses. It's supposed to awaken something, give us a taste of the future, and be awed by the fact that we're just living in a shadow compared to the glory that's coming. The Bible teaches that Christ's work was designed to restore all things to unite all things, to reconcile all things to God, to do away with death and tears and pain, to destroy the curse. For in Him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile Him to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The eternal redemptive reality, that future glory that awaits us, is portrayed as a restoration and an escalation of the Garden of Eden. In Ezekiel 36, 35, Isaiah 51, 3, The very language used to depict the new creation is the Garden of Eden. It'll be like a return to the Garden of Eden. That's what those texts say. In light of the full redemptive work of Christ, the restored new creation and new covenant will extend to beasts and birds and creeping things, resulting in global safety. As the once predatory animals become vegetarian and dwell peacefully alongside lamb and child so that no creature need to fear them. Isaiah 11, 6-9, 65-25, both of these texts are the lion and the lamb text. Hosea 2.18 says, I'm going to do a new thing. And rather than just calling it a new covenant, it says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the world. That will include the beasts of the heavens and the birds, the beasts of the earth and the birds of the heavens. It's going to go global. It's a new creation. Now, 
Are these images of new creation and peace, escalation beyond the original state, or are they part of the return to the original state? In this day of consummation, all enemy oppression will be put down. All human disease and suffering and death will be abolished. The curse will be no more. No longer will there be anything accursed, it says in Revelation 22.3. Yeah. No mourning, no crying, no pain anymore. No longer anything accursed. Now into this we read, I already commented on marine death, Jesus eating fish, fishermen around the Dead Sea and the new creation, Christ eating the Passover meal, Luke 22. The menu at the marriage supper of the Lamb will include oxen and fattened livestock, which necessitates animal death. That's how it's portrayed, and it doesn't have any problem. The Bible doesn't have any problem portraying that. A feast of rich food on the new earth will be full of marrow, it says in Isaiah 25 and Revelation 21. That is the fatty parts that are on the bone. So, this could be another question, but I'm going to just present my idea here. Humans are only allowed to eat meat after the flood. And it's because of animal violence, as it's rising, the image of God has to be preserved among humans. And so God allows humans now to instill fear in the animal kingdom, it says in Genesis chapter 9, by eating them. Remember part of the... um, God, God told Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8, no, Deuteronomy chapter 7, that they would not take over the land of Israel quickly. No, it's going to take a very long time. They will be in houses that they did not build and drink cisterns that they did not dig and eat vineyards and olive trees that they did not plant. And not only that, oh, what does it say? It says, lest the beasts of the earth grow too numerous for you and they overcome you. Um, So they have to get into these villages and it's going to take a long time so that their population can be big enough so that they just don't come in and the wild beasts overcome them. That's part of the image of curse. It's all reversed in the future. The animals that were doing violence against humans were imaging the same type of violence that the serpent was doing against humans in the garden. And so in being able to eat animals, they are typifying the victory of the sun over the serpent. The reason that we're able to eat bacon today is because it's victory food. Because all the unclean animals, as I understand it, All the unclean animals, which were already known by Noah in Genesis 6. He already was able to distinguish the clean and the unclean. The unclean animals were identified, I believe, because they all of them have some identification with the serpent in the garden. And the reason you move 
when new creation comes, to being able to not simply eat clean animals, but now everything becomes clean. It's because Christ has overcome the serpent. And I would suggest that our ability to eat meat into the future is one of those sustained gifts of God like language. People from every tongue and tribe and people in language. Lots of languages proclaiming the glory of God in the future. Yet language is a result of curse. Multiple languages. The Tower of Babel. Yet God's going to let those multiple languages be retained in the future as an eternal testimony that curse has been overcome. That God can overcome the curse with blessing. Similarly, I propose that because the death of animals is directly associated with the chaos and movement of the serpent in the garden. That that's why there's animal death. That's why God allows humans into eternity to continue to consume meat as an eternal testimony of the victory of the Son over the serpent. I didn't get to put all that on my slides, but that was where I was headed. So, in summary, my arguments for a young earth, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 places humanity within the first week of creation. The New Testament closely associates the history of Genesis 2 through 4 with the beginning of the world. Genesis's linear genealogies in 5 and 11 point to a recent humanity. Mankind's station is the climax of creation and the sole image of God. And Adam's role as head of the first creation supports a young earth. Scripture usually portrays the death and suffering of living creatures as part of the curse, so millions of years of animal suffering and death pre-fall seems unlikely. And then, finally, the shift away from animal predation in the new creation and humanity's consumption of meat in the new creation together suggest animal death and suffering arose at the fall in association with the work of the serpent and not before, which would imply a young earth. Six biblical reasons that have influenced me in being a young earth creationist. And your call is simply to use the Bible, affirm all that the Bible teaches. And if at any point, and all of my arguments have solid responses from godly men and women, I told you up front, For me, it's a cumulative case, not a silver bullet case. It's a cumulative case. And if you can cut down, respond biblically against each of my arguments um, for a different age of the earth, then um, may the Lord bless you with that. And that's, that's totally fine. I don't think this is an issue of inerrancy. It is an issue of the authority of Scripture, but not to affirm my view. Just that you, as godly men and women, need to be willing to submit to the book wherever it leads and let that be the highest authority in your life. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for these weeks. We've tackled a big issue, and I pray that you've been honored. I've tried to to be faithful to your word and also loving to your church, 
not try to go beyond what I believe you call us to, and also to recognize that there are godly men and women who have different views than I have, and um, they can be very justified in holding them with solid biblical arguments. I pray you'd lead these people to live in this world that can so often be so chaotic. All of us, united, praise you that you are the creator, that you have been working from the beginning to bring about your purposes in your son, the last Adam. Thank you for a historical Adam and Eve and that Jesus overcomes historical sin, sin that is indeed part of our lives. And that that Jesus has purchased for us an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled, kept in heaven for us and that will come to earth. We look forward to the full-blown new creation when we can revel in it and go deeper in and higher up. For your glory we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.